At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. We were in chapter 1 last week, and we're going to begin in chapter 2 today. You know, we are deeply now into the Christmas season, and maybe your family has different traditions or different things that you celebrate during the, the Christmas season. And for me, one of the things that I love Uh, There are many things I love about the Christmas season, but there's one thing that I love about the Christmas season, and that is the Christmas lights. Anyone else love Christmas lights? There's just something about them that you're driving down the road and your your heart just kind of picks up a little bit as you see the Christmas lights. Well, when we lived in Delaware, uh, there was a place that people talked about over and over and over again as the greatest light show display of all time. So everywhere we go, when we first moved there and we had our first Christmas there in Delaware, everyone's like, you've got to go to this place. It is the, they have the best lights of all time. And I'm like, really? Like, yes, of all Christmas lights, this place is the goat, okay? You've got to go see this. So we were there for a couple years and uh, we decided that one Saturday we were going to go uh, to this place. It was called the Christmas Village and it's in Burnville, Pennsylvania, so if you've ever heard of, anyone ever heard of the Christmas village in Burnville? Okay, so it must be a regional thing. It might not be the greatest light show of all time, but it was for the people where we lived. And what was kind of neat about it, it was only an hour and a half away. And so we're trying to, we decide we're going to pack up the car and we, we drive the hour and a half and everything's smooth sailing. I'm, I'm excited because it's Christmas season. It's Saturday. We're having fun, forced family fun. And it was great stop off at a gas station, get some snacks. We continue driving on. We get about two miles away from the place. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. We're going to see the lights. I'm going to get to get home and I'm even going to have some time to prepare for Sunday morning. It's going to be awesome. And I'm, I'm super happy. And we get closer. We're about two miles away and traffic starts to build. And the closer we get, more and more and more and more traffic. And we're like in the back roads of Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever been in the back roads of Pennsylvania, but they don't have straight roads, right? They make roads that go around mountains and hills and and water and trees and all this. And so the roads are all like this. You can't even see what's so far ahead of you. But what we realize is that two miles away, we now find ourselves on the road, but in a parking lot. Not literally a parking lot, but the traffic was so bad. It's a two-laner that's going, whipping around and all this. We really don't know how far we are from the entrance. And this wonderful night of fun and celebrating and seeing the lights for me becomes a point of anger and frustration as we move about a half a centimeter every minute. 
Those of you that know me, you know, like, this is not my spiritual gift. Right? Driving is very, very challenging for me and frustrating for me. So we're getting there, and, and it literally took us two and a half hours to go two miles. Needless to say, I'm no longer in the Christmas spirit. I no longer want to see the lights. All I want to do is go home because now, like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I've got to preach in the morning. Now I'm calculating the time. It's going to take us four hours and this and this. I'm not going to get home until well after midnight, and it's going to be a terrible day. But we pull up, and this is what we see. Show the, got that. There we, nope. <laughs> Christmas vision spotlight. Is there, is there a photo in there? Okay. Well, it, needless to say, it is a neat place. It is a fantastic place. But that night, I didn't want to have any of it. Okay, lights all over the place. Houses all decked out in lights. And it, it, was, it really was a neat place, but I wasn't having it. Kids kind of had it a little bit. By the time we got the, uh, the pecans and the roasted pecans and all of that, I was kind of getting in the Christmas spirit. But then I looked at the clock and I'm like, it's time to go. So we spent probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes at the Christmas village and we had to go home. Needless to say, in my heart and in my mind, that is not the greatest light display of all time. Needless to say, maybe some have many, many fond, fond memories of that place, but not for me. And it's interesting how our feelings about things can impact the way we view things, right? How, how we feel. The, the greatest light display of all time in my mind now is a great memory, but it's not a great memory because of the lights, but it's a great memory because I got a chance to spend two and a half hours with my family in the car. It's also interesting that we have this, this constantly trying to define what is the greatest, who is the greatest, right? That's, that's a debate that goes on in sports. It's a debate that goes on in politics. It's a debate that goes on in every area of our life. And it's so funny how each one of us have our own ability to define what is the greatest. So what may be the greatest for you may not be the greatest for me. And today, as we jump into God's word, what we're going to see as we're continuing our series today, entitled Fulfilled, we're taking a look at how Jesus, through Jesus' coming, he has fulfilled God's promises from the Old Testament, that God is a God that makes promises and God is a God that keeps his promises. And today, as we jump into God's word, we're going to see that even though the world tries to define what is the greatest, we know because God is the finer of all things, God gets to define what is the greatest and who is the greatest. So as we look at the word today, what we're going to see is that in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. In Jesus, the least can become the greatest. Let's look in Matthew um, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. It says, Now after that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea 
for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed and went to their own country by another way. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see three truths about the greatness in the kingdom of God. How God's greatness and how God defines greatness is way different than the way that the world defines greatness. And first we're going to see is that greatness isn't based on our reputation. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. What we see here at the very beginning of this passage is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We learned that last week and we see it carrying over now. And we don't know exactly how much time has elapsed from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. But we see that Jesus was a child at this time. So probably not a baby. So there's a significant amount of time between um, the time that Jesus is born in chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. But we see that these wise men have come seeking to worship him. Somehow, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but somehow the word of God has come to these wise men who come from afar, they come seeking to worship a king. And in their desire to worship a king, where do they go? Well, if you want to worship the king, you go to the place where the king lives. And so they came to the city of Jerusalem, where, which was the capital of Israel. And so they come seeking this king. They come entering into the town. And to their amazement, you would think if a great king had been born, there would be celebration. That people in the streets would know and be celebrating this brand new king who had been born. And imagine the wise men as they come into Jerusalem and they're like, hey, where's the king who's been born? People are like, what? Who are you talking about? What are you talking about? And so they're perplexed as they're walking through the streets. No one knows who this king has been born or where the king has been born. So they go directly to King Herod himself. And they come to King Herod and they say, King Herod, where is the king who has been born? The king of the Jews because we've come to worship him. And Herod's like, what? What are you talking about? There's no king here. I, my wife is not pregnant. We haven't had a king. There's no other king. I am the king is what he says. And he goes on and it says that he was troubled by this announcement. We'll get to that in a little bit. But not knowing what's going on, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes. And he asks them, where's the king of the Jews? Where's he supposed to be born? And they know because they have read the prophets. And they go back and they, they quote Isaiah or Micah 5.2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient 
days. So it's not Jerusalem where this king is to be born. You would think that it would be Jerusalem, right? Because that's where everyone goes. Jerusalem is the political capital of the region. It is the religious capital of the region. It is the place that has the palace, but it also has the temple. And in the temple, that's where the worship of God takes place. That's where the presence of God is. So you would think when the king of the Jews was born that he would be born in Jerusalem. But he wasn't. Micah foretold years and years ago that this Messiah, this one that would come to be the shepherd and ruler of God's people, he would come from Bethlehem. And this king that would come to Bethlehem would be different than any other king because Micah foretold that this king who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This king would be different from any earth king because Jesus existed and was there before the foundations of the world before before taking on flesh and dwelling among us Jesus existed in eternity past as the second member of the trinity that's what Micah's talking about is that he was of old of ancient days that he was there at creation and that this would be the next step this king that would come would be the one that would continue the plan of God to redeem humanity. And it's the chief priests and the scribes that knew where he was to be born because according to their words, he would be a great ruler. He would be a great shepherd of God's people. But you have to ask yourself the question, why Bethlehem? Why in the world would God use Bethlehem as the place to allow the light to invade the darkness? What is so special about Bethlehem? And the reality is nothing. Bethlehem was a small town that's located outside or south of the city of Jerusalem, about six miles south. It was kind of part of a trade route where people would send their goods from Israel and they'd kind of go through Bethlehem on their way to Egypt and then back from Egypt and all that. But it had no significance. According to the world, it was just a small town that nobody ever thought about. It had no reputation. It had no worldly significance. But in God's way, Bethlehem was significant because of its reputation in God's redeeming story. You see, Bethlehem is the place, according to scripture, is the place where Jacob buries Rachel. Remember that story from the Old Testament? Remember, remember Jacob uh, goes and falls in love with Rachel and loves her and goes to her father Laban and says, hey, I will work for you for seven years if I can marry your daughter Rachel. He says, sure. So he works seven years and then on the night of their wedding, he switches and, and gives, him, gives, her, gives him Leah, his oldest daughter, to marry. And so he's married to Leah and he's, he's been shafted by his, his father-in-law. And so he says, but I love Rachel. And he says, okay, work for me seven more years and then you can have her. So finally, he works, she works for seven more years and finally is able to marry Rachel, the love of his life. And when it comes time for her to pass, Jacob goes to Bethlehem and buries his wife there. The story of patient love. You know what else took place in Bethlehem? Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Remember Ruth was, was um, 
from, not from Israel, but she came back because of the famine. She came back with Naomi and they were destitute. And Boaz was her, her kinsman redeemer. And God shows us the story of his redeeming love through, through Ruth and Boaz. You guys remember that? Like that happened in Bethlehem. God's unfolding his plan of redemption for all humanity through this insignificant town. You know who else came from Bethlehem? King David. King David was born. Bethlehem is known as the city of David. Don't tell me God's not using the insignificant things of this world to make them great. God always does that. This is the story of our great God. Our world wants to take the great and make them greater, but God wants to take the insignificant and bless the insignificance with greatness. And this is what he did in Bethlehem, and this is what he's doing again in the birth of Jesus. God gives us this reminder. God uses insignificant people and places to remind us how he works. God uses the seemingly unimportant to make a profound impact. And church, you need to hear this today. God uses insignificant people and places for significant purposes for the kingdom of God. What we learn today is that our reputation doesn't define our greatness. Whether your reputation is, is in a place where it's really, really great right now, or maybe you're walking through a season where your reputation has been tarnished, let me remind you, according to the word of God, your reputation does not define you. God doesn't, is not concerned necessarily about your reputation in the way that the reputation that the world has given you, but God wants to define your reputation. God is in the business of taking the insignificant, the broken, those with horrible reputations and using them in powerful ways. God uses the broken. God uses the outcast. God uses the one that walks through broke, seasons of brokenness, seasons of understanding our own frailty, our own weakness. It's when we understand those things that God can step in and he can do mighty work. So church this morning, don't let your past define you. Because God sees you and God can use you. God used insignificant Bethlehem and God can use you. Greatness is not based on our reputation. Second, I want us to see that greatness isn't based on our identity. Look with me in verse one and then we'll jump down to verse seven. Verse one says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Then jumping down to verse seven. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the second truth that we see is that greatness isn't based on our identity. Greatness is not based on our identity. In this passage, we see that greatness is not based on who we are or what we've done, 
but our greatness is defined in how we respond to Jesus. As we look at this passage a little bit deeper, there, there's a lot of things going on as we look at the identity. And I want us to just look at three characters. I want us to look at Herod the king. I want us to look at the chief priests and the scribes. And then I want us to look at the magi or the wise men really quickly. Herod was known as Herod the Great. He was installed by the Roman emperor to bring peace among the Jews. He was given the title king of the Jews. And so it's shocking to him when these wise men from a very far distance come and they say, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, I'm him. And they're like, no, you're not. You're not the one that we've come to worship. Can you imagine? Because his identity is so wrapped up in the fact that he is the king of the Jews, that he is Herod the Great, that he's got a reputation to uphold. He's got an identity to live out. And his identity was so wrapped up in who he was that when the most amazing message of all time comes to him, he can't even hear it because it only enrages him. It enrages him. Why? Because the power and the identity that he was given was man-given. And whenever man gives us our identity, it leads to paranoia because we can always lose it. You hear that? We can easily, easily lose our identity if it's man-given. But when our God-given identity, when we rest in that and we walk in that, no one can take that away. And so King Herod the Great hears the message that had been prophesied years ago that this king who is going to come and shepherd God's people, it doesn't lead him to worship. It leads him to anger and frustration. So what does he do? We read on in the story later on that his frustration boiled over so much that he was so frustrated that he had all the young boys in the land killed. His identity his human identity hindered him from worshiping the king of kings. But then we look at the chief priests and the scribes. We know that they were supposed to be servants of the Lord. The scribes were masters of the law. And so they were called to bring understanding to God's people of God's prophecies and in God's words. And they knew all this stuff, but it didn't lead them to worship. The chief priests were the ones that were to be the go-between between a holy God and a sinful man. They were the ones that were offering the sacrifices for sin. And so we see that they had a very specific place in God's design, and yet their identity was so caught up in their titles that when these wise men come to them and say, this king has been born, where is he supposed to be born? They knew the answer. They knew, but their knowledge did not transform their hearts and lead them to worship. Church, we should be very, very careful that we are not growing just in knowledge, but the knowledge that we have of God and his word leads us to deeper worship. And then third, we see these wise men. These wise men, these wise men we don't know exactly much about them from scripture. We know they were from afar, primarily from the east, but we do know that wise men at the time were pagan. They were from a pagan land. More than likely, they were probably from Babylon. They had no identity, no reason to know the Messiah. These were men that specialized in astrology and mathematics, and they tried to grow in wisdom. They were, uh, gave, gave counsel to kings. These, these men were a, a part of a special group of the society that were learned men. And they heard 
of this Messiah because they were watching the stars. And when his star appeared, they're like, oh, that's the sign. That's the sign that the the Messiah has been born. Now let's go and let us worship him. Not paying homage to him, but worshiping him. It always surprises me. Have you ever wondered, like, how in the world did these magi get, get the Old Testament scripture? How did they know? Anyone know? Through Daniel. And you know the story about Daniel, how, he got, how they got there? Well, it's because God's people were disobedient. God's people continually disobeyed God's word. And God wants to show his love, but also correction. So he allows his people to go into captivity in Babylon. And in Babylon, we see Daniel rises up and he is a a counselor to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar and to others. And during this time, he's he's giving counsel to the magi or to the wise men. And so it is Daniel through the Babylonian captivity, he gives word to the other magi that got passed on down from century to century, century to century. And so it's through discipline, listen, listen, It's through the discipline of God's people that God continues to carry out his plan of redemption. Let us sit back and marvel at the work of what God is doing to save us from our sins. You may be walking through a season of discipline from the Lord. Don't run from it. Don't run from it because God wants to use it to further his kingdom and he wants to use it to further unfold his plan of redemption. And we see that the word of the Lord that they had had impacted their lives in such a way that these pagan, according to the world, right? Remember at that time, there's only two types of people. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. You're either in or you're out as it relates to God. Well, they were on the out. And according to the world, they were worthless and useless. They had no part in God's plan of redemption. And guess what? God, through his sovereignty and through his plan, allows them to be an integral part of God's plan of redemption. You see, each one of us here today have a mixture of things that make up our identity. Right? For me, I'm a man. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm white. I'm an American. Like, I got all of these. I'm a mixture of all of these things, right? And though the world continually wants to define me and to say, this is the identity you must live in. If you are these things, then this is who you are, right? Don't you guys feel that way about the world? Like you are who the world says you are. Well, that's not true. We are who Jesus says that we are. And really in my life, the only identity that ever really matters is the fact that I am a child of God. And that's not based on anything that I've done, but it's based solely on all that Christ has done, which we're going to look at in just a second. See, the world wants to define you. The world wants to tell you that you're this. The world wants to give you all kinds of different value based on who they identify you as. Stop listening to the world. The world wants to put you in a box, but Jesus wants to put you on display. He wants to put you on display where he says, world, look at my child. Look at the one in whom I loved, the one in whom I gave myself for. Let them be on display because they're not perfect. They're going to fail. But guess what? They're forgiven. And they're in this process of being sanctified. Oh, let our lives be put on display. 
So greatness is not found in our identity. But thirdly, greatness is based on our relationship with Jesus. Let me move quickly through this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 is this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then verse, jumping down to verse 11, we see, and then these are the Magi. And now going into the house, they saw the child that was with Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and Myrrh. Now I want us to see here that God has been unfolding this story of redemption and the story comes to the pinnacle in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the one that was foretold and that he's born in Bethlehem and he comes with the purpose of being a ruler that will shepherd the people of Israel. As these magi come into the house, their response when they see the Savior, when they see this one has been prophesied, their response was to fall down and worship him. Now I want to share with you just for a second why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Why he is different and he is the greatest king of all time. He is the only one that we really need to bow our hearts before. Because I love what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is encouraging the church and encouraging us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, and he's describing Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to describe him, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what I want us to see is Jesus doesn't come ruling and reigning on a great white horse and and demanding that people worship. No, Jesus came, who was the greatest of all time, fully God and fully man, came to be a servant. He came in a lowly way so that he would do the work of saving us from our sins. Jesus willingly went to a cruel cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And through his humble, through his humbleness and through his uniqueness, after his death, Jesus saw his sacrifices enough that he raised him. And now Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father that there's coming a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of the Father. Now for some, for some, that bowing the knee before the Savior is going to be a time of sweetness. When we finally get to see the one who has done the work on our behalf, we bow before him and we say, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you. Thank you. But for some, for some, They will not bow their knee in humbleness. 
they will be made to bow their knee because they lived a life of pride. They've lived in their pride. They've lived for themselves. I have no need of Jesus. I have no need of this God. I have no need of any of this other stuff. And in that instant, they will be humbled. They will bow before him and they will see Jesus as a savior, but he no longer can save them. It'll be a moment of absolute terror. And then the great king will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And that departing is not a time of, okay, well, I I miss out. No, you you leave the presence of God in his peace and in his rest and you enter into the presence of God in his wrath for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded that this is not a game. We are not living a fairy tale. This is not folklore. This is not just some story that was written down. This is the truth. And the reality is there's coming a time where we are going to be separated from those that we love. And it's all based on what they do with Jesus. But now the time is right. We have voices in our lungs. Let us bow before him and worship him as our king. And let us tell others about how great he truly is. Greatness is based on our relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you that your words are true and that your words are life. And Father, I pray today that as we've taken a look at greatness through your eyes, I pray that our minds and hearts have been reset. To be, let us be reminded that you are the greatest of all time and that you have done the great work that is necessary for our salvation. So Father, I pray that in these moments as we worship you as king, that the words that come out of our mouths would truly be a reflection of our heart. And if there's someone here today that hasn't yet bowed their knee before you, Father, I pray that they would. I pray today would be the day of salvation, that they consider Christ and that they see him as the greatest prize. And may our continual response always be that of the wise men, that we come before Jesus and we lay everything that we are, all that we have before his feet and we respond in worship. So Jesus, this worship now we give to you is because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.